This is the Fertility Hour, where couples learn how to improve their fertility naturally. Join Charlene Lincoln as she interviews leading experts in the fields of natural fertility, holistic medicine, and preconception care. Fertility Hour is where you'll find evidence-based strategies, tips, and resources to help you when trying to conceive. And now, here's Charlene Lincoln. You know, I am so excited for this next guest because uh, my team and I, when she agreed to be on the podcast, we were all like, yay, because we love her books. She's amazing. She has done so much to educate people about true nutrition. And, and that's hard to do because it's just, it's just filled with myths and um, misinformation. And this woman has done her research. And so we were like, oh my gosh, she's the foremost authority and we have her on and I have a million questions for her. But um, I'm going to try to, you know, abstain and control because this is all about helping people with fertility issues and, and really reclaiming your health and um, just living your best life. So today, uh, I'm so excited to have uh, Nora Gedgadis, a board-certified nutritional consultant and board-certified clinical neurofeedback specialist with over 20 years of successful clinical experience. A recognized authority on ketogenic ancestrally-based nutrition, she's a popular speaker, an educator, and the author of the best-selling book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, as well as Rethinking Fatigue. Her newest book, Primal Fat Burner, Live Longer, Slow Aging, Superpower Your Brain, and Save Your Life with a High-Fat low-carb paleo diet has been lauded by best-selling author and journalist Nina Teichols as a unique and profound contribution to the field. Her new weekly educational program, Primal Restoration, is a unique and invaluable source of information benefiting those interested in furthering their nutritional knowledge and optimizing their health. And that speaks, I think, to our whole audience. So thank you so much. Welcome, Nora. Thank you so much for being thank on. Thank you so much for your kind introduction and for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Um, hey, before I just start bombarding you with questions, I have so many. Uh, how, does, um, how do we find out more about you and your books and yeah, everything so, you're doing? Yeah, yeah. So my main website is primalbody-primalmind.com. And you can kind of link to most things through there. I also have my weekly educational series, Primal Restoration. And to find out more about that, you can go to primalrestoration.com. Okay. So, but the, but the main website, it, it pretty much will link you to, to everything else that you're doing in your books. And... More or less, yes. I okay. also primalfatburner.com if you just want to find out more specifically about my new book. Yes. Okay. Uh, awesome. Um, now, uh, first question, and because, you know, anyone who's lived amongst wild animals of the four-legged variety, yeah, four-legged variety. It's, yeah. yeah it, 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 it's fascinating to me. And, it, you know, it, it brings up so many questions. It's kind of like, how did that shape you, you know, observing them and, you know, kind of where, where were you nutritionally at the time? Like, what was your diet? And, you know, how did, how did that change that, um, observing wolves out in the wild? Right. Well, all this sort of happened back in 1991. I was, uh, I had uh, some background already in having worked with wolves in, in the wild and in captivity, helping uh, with research. And the, uh, there was a wolf biologist by the name of Dr. L. David Meech, uh, who's arguably the world's 
form of scientific authority on the wolf. And he had found this family of wolves less than 500 miles from the North Pole uh, in a place called Ellesmere Island um, back in 1986. And during that time, he managed to, uh, in no small feat, he found the den of this family of wolves, which, you know, packed territory up there is about a thousand square miles. So for him to find that needle in a haystack was really an extraordinary thing. And we found from bones that had been carbon dated from the inside of the den after, of course, the pups and whatever were no longer occupying it that season, um, that, that, you know, those bones were actually dated back at uh, 2000 years. So we know that for at least a couple thousand years and probably quite a bit longer that that very space had been occupied by generations of wolves. So at any rate, every summer, Dave goes up there and, and he sits quietly and he observes um, in, in, in a way that cannot really be accomplished anyplace else in the world. Every place else where wolves are, um, they have a tremendous fear of us and you can't get anywhere close to them. And, and this is area of the world is unique because these wolves have never been hunted. And mm. so they treated us with a, with a combination of curiosity or indifference, as it were. And, um, and uh, we were, you know, comfortably able to sit within a couple feet of these animals at any given time and observe their behaviors, follow them on their hunts, um, sometimes even get left babysitting the pups when the, when the parents went off hunting for a couple of days. Um, it was certainly the most industrial strength, uh, you know, sort of spiritual experience of my life. Mm. But it, you know, it shaped my thinking in other ways. Now, around the time that I left for Ellesmere, you know, I, you know, my, my interest in nutritional science has spanned in excess of 35 years now. I mean, there's certainly at that time, um, you know, I, I was pretty passionate about the subject matter, but uh, my interest up to that point had been mainly really kind of the minutia uh, of, of nutrition, understanding what, what nutrients did what and, and what supplements did what, etc. And I kind of had bought into the standard mainstream, you know, low fat, you know, high grain, you know, high complex carb sort of paradigm and uh, was kind of doing that thing. So I was doing a lot of juicing. I was eating a lot of salads um, and, uh, and other things and, and lean meat. And, and I wasn't a vegetarian at the time, although I'd been down that road. It just, it was catastrophic for me is what it was. Um, but uh, at any rate, you know, I went up there really concerned that I was going to be missing the single most important thing in my diet, was, which was plant foods. Mm -hmm. uh, and for that entire summer, you know, we weren't going to have access to grocery stores or anything else. It was going to be whatever kind of food we could drag with us, a lot of which was really high fat, you know, stuff that was super nutrient dense so that we, that it was more compact, easier to transport and more satisfying, really. And um, we had a few, you know, boil and bag dinner type things. And then we also did a little bit of hunting up there, you know, to sort of sustain ourselves. So, um, and I was really worried about that. And, you know, our first stop was a place, well, one of our first stops anyway, uh, a remote Inuit village called Resolute Bay, which is on a different island. It was Cornwallis Island, I believe, um, in the Canadian High Arctic Archipelago. And we spent a couple of days there uh, collecting gear and, and whatever else. And, I, and there's a, an Inuit population living there. At the time, there were probably about 200 people living there, mostly Inuit people. And, and uh, 
you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an alcohol-free zone. They didn't allow alcohol on the island, so the, the people living there didn't have access to that, thankfully for them. Uh, and it, it's so remote that twin otter planes get up there maybe maybe once a week, maybe once every other week to unload some non-perishable supplies and maybe a few limp carrots from Edmonton or something like that, you know. In other words, these people really didn't have access to plant foods per se. There was a grocery store that was about the size of the room I'm sitting in um, that had a few non-perishable items that, you know, you know, modern day processed crap, basically. Mm -hmm. And it isn't that people didn't like those foods, but they, they costed a lot of money. And, and at the time, it was just, you know, people weren't consuming a lot of that. They were, they were largely living off of the land because that was what it was least expensive for them to do, frankly. What was, what was living off the land, meaning? At well, that time? the subsistence lifestyle up there included you know, hunting for seal and walrus, occasional whale, you know, meat, and, and then occasionally getting out and being able to hunt musk oxen and caribou and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, the occasional polar bear, which only Inuit in, in Canada are allowed to kill polar bears. Um, and, um, and what I saw was a distinct lack of obesity. I really didn't see that. I mean, I, I don't have any illusions that these people were probably eating some processed foods. I don't know, you know, how they escaped that completely. But for the most part, you know, the kids looked healthy, seemed well-adjusted, temperamentally really just, you know, sweet and happy and curious. And, um, and the adults seemed perfectly healthy looking to me. And, and I was thinking to myself, how are they doing it up here without vegetables? And I hadn't really thought about it before going up there. And then I got up to Ellesmere a few days later. And, um, and one of the curious things that occurred not long after I arrived was that I started to develop um, these cravings for fat. And um, again, I'd been eating a very lean diet prior to that, a very low fat diet. It would not have occurred to me to crave fat before going up there. And in my whole life, I don't recall necessarily craving fat. And suddenly, you know, I found myself sitting on my backside on the tundra, spending all day long eating fat-rich foods. Was um, it cold at the time or what was oh, the yeah. I mean, we're talking oh, okay. 500 miles from the North Pole. So, yeah, yeah. You know, it was generally below freezing out. Although this was summertime up there, uh, which is admittedly brief, just two, three months. Um, before it gets dark again, 24-hour daylight. And, and this particular area um, is what is called a thermal oasis. So it was a bit warmer. And there, uh, things, you know, the area was also considered a desert, maybe two inches of precip per year. Um, although we saw an unusual amount of precip that summer. But at any rate, uh, and so, you know, the, there wasn't a lot of uh, snow around. And uh, there was a lot of you know, native plant life in Arctic willow and, and, and uh, you know, purple saxifrage and different things, you know, cotton grass, whatever, you know, kind of flourishing, but, <clears throat> but none of it was edible by us, right? It was mm -hmm. all that anybody would have lived there. One of the things that characterized the, the region I was in was that there were a number of archaeological sites 
I call them archaeological sites, although most of them had not yet been visited by archaeologists. They were still kind of sitting there just as the people that had lived there had left them um, for thousands of years and uh, fascinating. You know, and he saw the skulls of animals cracked open for their contents um, laying all over around these encampments and uh, the, you know, the huge femurs of muskox and cracked open. Right. To get the marrows and at the marrow. Right. Bones. And, and that's what I'm looking around because I think I have one of those, excuse me, uh, you know, marrow bones there. This had been broken. Uh-huh, that's quite hollowed drained. out. Yeah. It's been, it's been, it was drained. I'm sure it was enjoyed by whoever got so, at it. So and, Nora, you're, 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 you're living in this climate and you're starting to have cravings for fat that you don't normally, cause you're having the lean diet. So, so you're consuming more fat and kind of what's going through your head at the time or what, you know, what conclusions are you making? Oh, I'm from thinking, this? you know, oh my God, what am I doing to myself? But you know, I'm eating, I mean, I was eating, you know, handfuls of nuts, eating nut butters, eating cheese, eating salami, you know, I mean, I'm not saying I was eating the best quality fats I could have, but but eating fat was something that I just, you know, one, I just, I couldn't get enough. And once a week we would go to this military weather outpost uh, where we were allowed to take showers, <laughs> thankfully, and all that. And I was told by the person running the mess hall that, you know, if, if there was something laying out in the mess hall, because we always went at like three in the morning when everybody else was asleep. And so that we could, um, you know, go in there and do our thing without disturbing the activities there. And they said, if there was something laying out in the mess hall I was interested in, I was welcome to it. And I walked in and, and there with the light of heaven shining upon it was this enormous bowl of butter, right? And, and I went over and there was a toaster and some bread laying around. And I didn't care about the bread, but it was a vehicle for the butter. And so, and I was still eating bread in those days, unfortunately. But anyway, so I toast the bread and I would slather, you know, like this much butter on there and just nosh it down. And you know, that was like once a week or something I got to do that. And I would just eat slice after, you know, just eat as much butter as I could until I was too embarrassed to continue. <laughs> and anyway, you know, after, you know, a couple, three months of this, sitting on my backside, not moving around very much, you know, within just, you know, living amidst this family of wolves, just, you know, a couple feet away oftentimes from them, you know, following them on their hunts and sitting and watching them do what they did around the uh, den and you know, it's occasionally babysitting the pups when the parents went um, off on hunts that we didn't follow them on. Um, <clears throat> I actually lost about 25 pounds um, during that time. And mind wow. you, I was very well bundled against the cold. Um, and, uh, you know, the temperatures were freezing, but it wasn't like z zero degrees out or anything. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, hovering right around freezing. And I think the warmest day we had was 60 degrees, which was balmy. I actually got into a pair of shorts that day just to take pictures. But, but at any rate, um, but, you know, and I know that thermogenic, you know, um, metabolic activity was part of the equation here that, you know, your body starts brown edible tissue, starts burning white fat for energy just to keep you warm. Mm -hmm. But I was, like I say, very well bundled against the cold. And it's clear, it was clear to me that there was more to that equation. And so it got me thinking. It just got me thinking, how could this be possible? How is it that, that now, you know, that I've, that I've lost this much weight when all I did was sit and not move very much over the course of this summer um, and, and, and eat fat all day long? And so I had to just squirrel that away in the back of my mind because I just didn't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, um, 
upon returning, I stumbled across the work of Weston Price. Mm-hmm. And that was the first kind of like, I, you know, okay, this makes sense, you know, getting gobsmacked a little bit with, well, of course, this makes, this makes sense. But Weston Price didn't go back quite far enough for me. Um, I was really interested in digging back further, you know, what were the conditions and the foods that were most consistently available to us as a species that, that would have in fact forged our our genome forged our physiological makeup and forged our most basic nutritional requirements. And so, um, you know, so I, I began taking, you know, a very um, ancient ancestral perspective and, and really looking at that. And it's sort of interesting because in, in, um, in Weston Price's work, of course he covered, and I'm guessing your, your viewers are probably familiar with who he was. Yes, I, no? Um, I, I, I can't, I can't attest to if they are, but I right. would, well, well, you can I, Google him, amazing work, amazing yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, you think of him as a nutritional pioneer now, but he's mm-hmm. 10 years covering over a hundred thousand miles across the planet at a very unique time period in, in human history, 1920s, 1930s. We had just developed air travel and yet, um, there were still quite a number of primitive and traditional cultural groups living all over the planet. Uh, under all different kinds of, uh, you know, situations, you know, climatologic and ecological situations and things like that, who are still consuming their, you know, traditional diet, doing their traditional way of life. And he was able to get to quite a number of these cultures and evaluate their health, right, and evaluate the kinds of foods that they were eating. And what he found consistently, well, so what a lot of people have extrapolated away from Weston Price's work because he did, he was in the Arctic and then he was in the jungles, you know, of South America. And then he went to Africa and then he was in the remote Lotiontal Valley in Switzerland and some remote Celtic Isles. And he went to, you know, native North American tribal groups and he did all these things. And of course they were eating a very wide variety of foods and wherever they were eating the diet that was sort of traditional for them, their health was uniformly excellent. They had uniformly, more to the point, um, extremely healthy babies um, and, and you know, minimal problems with, with childbirth or any kinds of birth defects and things like that. Mm-hmm. And- uh, I always think of the teeth. Yeah, the teeth right, of the bo- right. So, uh-huh. so when you look up his work, what you're mm-hmm. gonna come across is a whole range of amazing photographs that, you know, if you don't read a single word of prices, the pictures tell the story. Mm-hmm. You can just see the the, you know, the beaming health of these traditional societies. They had every single tooth in their head was there and was perfect, perfectly aligned. Um, they had all their teeth. They didn't get cavities for the most part. And uh, and they weren't flossing and brushing. And they weren't flossing and brushing. <laughs> yeah, it's not about fluoride, <laughs> as we learned from him. Fluoride. Yeah. Right, and, and a whole bunch of other things that, that happened. Um, so what a lot of people take away from Price's work is, well, well, just eat real food. And, uh, but what they're forgetting was this very important question that he asked himself and that, that, and that he studied uh, the answer to. And that was, what did all of these groups where people were optimally healthy, physically, mentally, emotionally, et cetera, what did they all have in common, right? What were the common denominators in all mm. of these situations? And he found two, number one, um, they all consumed as many animal source foods as were available to them. 
Uh, and so in other words, he, he was not able to find any vegan cultures out there, tried as he might. He, he was really very disappointed about that. He was sure he would find somebody, some group somewhere. He never did. Um, every single people group that he encountered living their traditional way of life all consumed as many animal source foods as were available to them. But the, the second um, common denominator was that in every single instance where they, again, people were extraordinarily healthy and had freedom from disease and, and all kinds of mental, physical, emotional maladies, et cetera, and birth defects, et cetera, the most important sacred foods to them in every single instance were the ones highest in fat and fat soluble nutrients, wow. typically animal yeah. source. And to me, what you have in, in those two answers is the most important foundational framework for every one of us. And the rest, you know, all the other dietary inclusions that other cultures were able to kind of add in that seemed, you know, that, that they seemed to do okay with were kind of nuanced in nuances, shall we say, in the diet, as opposed to things of foundational importance and essentiality. Um, you know, the Inuit certainly, um, out of all of the people groups, the one people, uh, the one people group that he studied that had the, the fewest moving parts in their diet, right? The one mm -hmm. that most closely met that foundational framework uh, without a lot of extra bells and whistles, of course, were the Inuit. And he thought that they had some of the healthiest and most robust uh, babies that, that he had found, that he'd come across. And uh, they didn't have dental problems. They didn't have behavioral uh, problems. Um, the, the babies were, uh, women had very few problems with childbirth at all. And their health and dispositions seemed uniformly superb. And we're talking about a diet that basically couched in meat and fat with virtually no uh, plant material at all, uh, except maybe as an occasional snack from the fermented contents of a ruminant stomach or something like that. But other than that, you know, it, it wouldn't have been much. And, and certainly the area that I was in, uh, in, in Northern Ellesmere, where um, there were these archeological sites, you know, that, uh, Again, many of which were like untouched by archaeologists. Uh, they were just very, you know, primitive sites where uh, people had their dwellings and things like that. I mean, people had been living there for, for over 10,000 years that anybody knows, and they'd been thriving there for that long. And, and there was no edible plant life on Ellsbury. There were not even berries in the summertime up there. So um, in any instance, I'm not, you know, what I suggest is that, or what I'm not saying is that all anybody should be eating is meat and fat. I'm, I'm not suggesting that, but what I am suggesting is that that is a foundational framework that should be universally applicable. And then from there, the rest is all nuance. And, and given the extremely compromised environment that we live in today, we're not living in Western Price's time anymore, right? We have challenges that we're facing in our modern environment that that were far more challenging as far as I'm concerned than anything that our most primitive ancestors ever had to put up with. 
where our air, water, and food supply is, is, is polluted and tainted with all kinds of things. We've got GMOs, we've got EMF, we've got radiation contamination, we've got, you know, uh, all kinds of things happening that are compromising us. And, and, you know, the more we have compromising us, in my mind, the more important those foundations become. Going back and making sure the foundational frameworks are in place, and then we modify them based on what might uh, benefit, what might additionally benefit that, but not compromise it. Okay. Right. So you're talking about modern world, you're talking about a primitive diet, and that's kind of the foundation. But um, you were saying like, I mean, give us an idea of, you know, you're talking about all these things like EMF, Wi-Fi, the, the constant stressors that we're under, and then this primitive diet being the foundation, like what are the modifications or what does that right, look right. like so, for people? So, um, you know, the fact that, that some cultures ate, you know, starchy roots and things like that, in no way suggests to me that those foods were necessarily optimal for them, but that... Um, because we know that anything that, that, that stimulates insulin and, and all of that in, in our bodies, and or the, simply or the fact that they ate huge amounts of protein, which is also born out of uh, staple isotopic research, you know, from, from ancient, uh, you know, human uh, collagen remains and things like that. Um, you know, that that was not necessarily something that you know, we have to remember that just because our ancestors did something is not necessarily a good enough reason for us to do the same thing now. Mm. That, uh, and this is kind of where I part ways with the, with the so-called paleo genre, which has become whatever anybody wants to make it nowadays. It's become extremely commercialized. Um, but um, that, you know, how would we know what was optimal and what wasn't? And mm. what I've done is I've taken a look at human longevity research and there are a couple of basic principles that we can extrapolate from what has been discovered universally in, in longevity research and borne out to be true that number one, um, the less insulin we require over the course of our lives, the longer we're likelier to, the longer we're likely to live and the healthier we're likely to be by far. And also it's, it's very important to meet, you know, we're designed to get our, our protein requirements met through the consumption of complete source protein. In other words, protein from animal source foods. We're so well designed to consume animal source foods, it's just ridiculous. That's, we have a hydrochloric acid-based digestive system, right? We don't have a fermentative-based digestive system of a ruminant or an herbivore. Ours is hydrochloric acid-based. We're designed to get the nutrients directly from the animals that have synthesized them for us by what they've eaten and what they synthesize in their bodies painstakingly. Um, ruminants, on the other hand, uh, have bacteria that do a lot of that synthesizing for them. Mm -hmm. We have a digestive tract that makes up only about, or, or a colon rather, a fermentative section of our digestive tract that's only about 20% of our entire digestive tract. Whereas a chimp, which is mostly our closest primate relative, which is also, by the way, not vegetarian, all great apes hunt and eat some meat, uh, with the exception of, of gorillas, some herbivorous gorillas that have a brain that's about a third the size that would be expected for a primate of their size. But chimps have at least a 52% um, uh, you know, colonic capacity. In other words, they have these huge fermentative guts and they all look like they have beer guts, you know, chimps do. Um, and they're able to synthesize a lot of nutrients from the plant foods that they eat all day. So they're much better designed to make use of plant foods than we are. 
but plant foods can provide us with um, a whole plethora of, of phytonutrients, of antioxidants that can help us, you know, help detoxify some of the additional things in our environment. Uh, they provide bulk and, and can certainly be kind of filling and also can provide fodder for our poor beleaguered microbiome, right? And, and feed the healthy bacteria in our guts. We can't really extrapolate and we don't, the, the, the nutrients that are made in the colon, in our, in our colons by our friendly little internal wildlife, if you will, um, those nutrients are meant for them, not us. So the butyric acid they make, the B12, whatever B12 they make, whatever else, it's designed for them, okay? They're making mm -hmm. it to feed themselves with. Um, and so we have to get those things from other, from other things in our diet. And, um, and we're extremely well designed to do that, but it's important to meet those protein requirements but not exceed them. Because if we start eating protein in excess of what we require, well, actually, this speaks to the fertility issue. If you are, okay, if you are looking to become pregnant um, or you are pregnant or you're lactating, you know, you, you've already had your baby and, and, or if you are a baby or a child or a teen, in other words, you're growing or you are attempting to reproduce in some way, mm -hmm. that extra protein actually becomes important. That is an impetus for re, re, reproductive um, enhanced reproductive capacity. Uh, there's, there's a metabolic uh, pathway called mTOR, stands for mammalian target rapamycin. And it's constantly, it's like your body's default protein sensor. And it's constantly looking for evidence of how, how much, what's the nutrient availability in the diet? And is this a good time to reproduce or not? When we consume protein in excess of what we need, that's the signal of, okay, great time to make new cells, great time to make new life. What, what's, so what, what is that guideline of, I mean, so yeah, what's the guideline? Because we're, we're talking about fertility issues here. We're talking what's about the, what's, what's the excess? If you to become pregnant, then yeah. you really want to meet but not exceed those things. Right. So what? That is a potential also impetus for cancer. Not good. But, but if you are really needing to make new cells, so the, the amount that I end up recommending for the average person, not the average person trying to have babies, is about 0.8 grams per kilogram of ideal, uh, estimated ideal body weight. Okay. And, and you know, I, I, I provide all that information in my books. Uh, that, that equation is there. Anybody can plug their numbers in and figure it out very quickly. But what you need to do is add about 25% to that. Okay. You know, at least a gram to a gram and a quarter, a gram and a half per kilogram of your estimated ideal body weight in order to meet the, the demands of, of, of something like pregnancy, right? Uh, or, or, or early childhood growth and development. Now, um, so... So protein becomes more important when you're pregnant or trying to become pregnant. You know, and, I and the type of protein, as you were saying before, the, the type the, of protein. The type of protein. By the way, I really want to define this too, because what I'm advocating for is basically a, a, a fat-based, essentially ketogenic approach that is use it, utilizing foods of uncompromising quality. That is something that I'm unshakable 
from. Mm -hmm. Please That's, describe what that is. So yeah. what I mean by unshakable quality mm -hmm. is the meat from and the fat of the animals, well, the health of the meat that you eat, you know, and, and the fat or whatever is directly correlates to the health of the animal that meat and fat came from. You want to be consuming meat and fat from animals that themselves have eaten a diet that's natural to them. In other words, where they have um, been able to live out in fresh air and sunshine and, and forage naturally on grasses and, and other types of forage that are natural for that particular animal, as opposed to being stuffed full of grain, shot full of hormones and antibiotics and other things that are completely unnatural to wild animals, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so you want things to be organic, non-GMO, please, you know, and, and totally grass fed and finished. Grass finished. That's a real, that's a real point. Thing because yeah. a lot of meat markets and, 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 and stores, whatever, get by and say, well, yeah, no, it's all grass fed because all cows spend some of their life on pasture. Mm -hmm. um, but it's where that animal spends the last few weeks of its life that ultimately counts because that's what's going to make up. The, the most of the fatty acid composition. If the animal has consumed nothing but grass right up to the day uh, of its death, then what you're going to have is very high omega-3 content. You're going to have very high beta carotene content, very high vitamin A, very high vitamin D, very high vitamin E. You're going to have all these, and CLA, conjugated linoleic acid, which is anti-cancer and, and helps promote um, you know, brain health and, and all kinds of wonderful things. Um, and then you're also going to, um, you know, you're, you're, you can get as much omega-3 per gram in, in some really high quality sources of grass-fed beef as you, as you would in a piece of wild salmon, you know? So, I mean, our ancestors weren't getting omega-3s. I mean, from, uh, you know, you know, from fish and stuff like that, maybe occasionally they did. But for the most part, our evolutionary antecedents got the majority of their protein and their fat from actually land, very large land-based herbivores. That was the preferred thing that we hunted throughout most of the 2.6 million years of our evolutionary history. And, and the very fats that actually characterize the human brain um, and, and, and are responsible for its unique cognition Okay, the, so the two fatty acids most responsible for our unique human cognition are these 20 and 22 carbon fats, arachidonic acid, evil arachidonic acid, and also hexanoic acid, or DHA, both of which are exclusively found within our diets within animal source foods. And so this is what makes our brains unique. And if these things aren't in your diet, then they're not in your brain. You know, we actually, over the last 10,000 years, you know, following the demise of the megafauna that we hunted for, you know, for 2.6 million years up until the end of the last ice age, suddenly, you know, more than 120 species, literally tens of millions of animals suddenly died in almost the blink of an eye. This wasn't due to overhunting by humans. There may have been some overhunting that happened, but you can't account for loss of 120 of the largest species that ever walked, you know, mammalian species that ever walked the earth based on a bunch, a handful of paleo Indians running around and running animals. Right. Around. Yeah. <laughs> they were, right. And, 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 and there's some recent evidence too from, um, you know, it, from, you know, um, astronomers and, and geologists and whatever have, have come now to kind of a realization that, that this all did end very, very abruptly. 
And so suddenly we had to come up with something else. And being the enterprising and innovative species we are, you know, we came up with the idea of cultivating seed grains, ill-conceived idea, but we did, you know, did it because it was convenient. And I think we also developed um, a little bit of an addiction. I think addiction is probably a good reason for why it is that we went from a relatively, um, you know, comfortable three-hour workday of, you know, they, they estimate the average workday for hunter-gatherer, you know, you hunt together and you're done in like three hours, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, you know, eight plus hours of backbreaking labor in the fields for a vastly inferior source of nourishment that you can't, that no human being can even make full use of. You know, if you, if you, uh, you know, Dr. Alessio Fasano, who's the world's foremost scientific authority, you know, arguably on celiac disease will tell you point blank, there's not a human being alive on earth that can actually digest gluten. So it's not a protein source for us. It always causes damage to the gut. It always causes damage to the brain. It's always compromising, let's put it that way, regardless of whether you have an immune reactivity to it. And immune reactivity is far more common than anyone knows. The fact that only one to three percent of everyone that has gluten immune reactivity knows it by no means suggests that that's all that there is, right? Mm -hmm. The yes. vast majority of people that have trouble with this have no clue. But you don't have to have problems with it in order for it to damage your gut or damage your brain. And so, um, and but you know, I think that you know, so grains contain exorphins. Exorphins are morphine-like compounds that. Um, that are, you know, that some people are particularly sensitive to in a way that makes them extremely addictive. Um, the, the high starch content of grains and, and other starchy foods and sugary foods trigger opiate centers in the brain that make them very compelling to us. And also, um, you know, once we figured out that we could ferment this stuff into beer, you know, the dye was cast, right? Mm -hmm. So. Uh, we began to increasingly adopt an agriculture-based diet for the first time in our entire evolutionary history. What this has resulted in over the last 10,000 years is a more than 10% loss of our brain volume. Okay, We've lost just over 10% of that. Our brains are mostly fat. You know, By dry weight, if you take out the, the moisture content, about 80% by dry weight. So, you know, they say 60%, but that's you, there's water factored in. Mm -hmm. um, and our brains are constructed from the very fats that we supply them with, with what it is that we choose to eat. Fully a fourth to 30% of all of the cholesterol in your body is up here, and it has to be there. You cannot have healthy brain function without it. Um, you know, avoiding cholesterol or trying to lower cholesterol is an ill-conceived idea if, if, in fact, you still have a brain. If you don't have a brain, no problem. But if you have a brain, you need that cholesterol. One of the most common side effects, and I ran into this all the time because I've spent 20 years working with the brain in, in my private practice, you know, one of the most common things, people would come in and say, yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm forgetting things. My memory isn't what it used to be and whatever. And I'm like, sure. I want some kind of cholesterol lowering med. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, how did you know? Well, yeah, Lipitor or whatever is it's, it's, I mean, it's, right. yeah, one of the, well, if you want healthy babies, yeah, you've got to have sufficient cholesterol. You've got to have sufficient fat and fat soluble nutrients 
Um, those fat-soluble nutrients are not only important for your, uh, your, your, um, your health, um, but also, and, and, you know, the prevention of things like birth defects and things like that. But they're also, you know, critical for the formation of the immune system for, um, you know, for uh, the manufacturing of, of hormones and prostaglandins and, uh, and also the absorption and the proper absorption utilization of minerals. Well, what about, I mean, there's, there's people that are going to be listening and going, this makes me uncomfortable because I'm told that I have borderline high cholesterol. Like, let's debunk some of, well, kind of what I, creates I, that. So much time have you got? So I know, right. Because um, I can go on all day about this. Look, even the American Heart Association concedes, kind of under their breath, you know, well, yeah, they, they now will admit that dietary cholesterol and serum cholesterol have nothing, virtually nothing to do with each other that, you know, we have anywhere from, what, 100, 100 150,000 milligrams of cholesterol distributed throughout the human body, you know, throughout the brain and nervous system, throughout every cell membrane, at least 35,000 milligrams of that is just occupying um, each one of your cell membranes, and that we use to make our steroidal hormones, and that you use to synthesize vitamin D from sunlight, and that you, I mean, cholesterol is used, is, it functions like an antioxidant in the body, your body actually has the means to manufacture up to a couple thousand milligrams a day of its own supply. And, and if for some reason you stop eating cholesterol, your body's going to start trying to make more cholesterol in a way that's a little bit, you know, um, you know uncontrolled by activating this enzyme in the liver called HMG-CoA reductase. Um, and that's what statin drugs basically you know, suppress is that enzyme, which manufactures cholesterol from things like carbohydrates in the diet. If you want to, to naturally you know, normalize your cholesterol levels, well, eat sufficient cholesterol and, you're, you know, and, and try to avoid the excess carbs and your cholesterol level are go and um, the lipoprotein profile associated with those cholesterol levels, in other words, high density lipoproteins and low density lipoproteins. There's no such thing as good and bad cholesterol. There's mm -hmm. only one form of cholesterol that your body makes. And, and it is, manuf and it is uh, carried into the body, it is uh, from the liver on a carrier molecule known as low-density lipoprotein, LDL. Cholesterol is not the only thing piggybacking on LDL. Antioxidants and other nutrients and fatty acids also, you know, go out for the ride from your liver out to the periphery of your body where cholesterol does all of its magical things and, and where these other nutrients are, are you know, brought and deposited and, and utilized. And then once that's spent, it's recycled back into the liver again by something called high density lipoprotein or HDL, which is mm -hmm. dubbed the good cholesterol. Which right, is right. Term because, you know, where is the word cholesterol in high density lipoprotein or low density lipoprotein? Right. So, um, and once HDL brings cholesterol back to the liver, it is then recycled back into LDL again and goes back out. It's not taken and eliminated from the body as a bad thing, right? Cholesterol is not taken away and gotten rid of. It's actually recycled and reinvigorated to make the next set of rounds. And cholesterol functions like an antioxidant in your body. It's also like your body's version of duct tape. It goes around patching up lesions and, and shoring up, you know, you know, cell membranes and things like that. Um, and just sort of doing its job to make sure that you have good cellular uh, integrity and that um, if there's damage in your arteries, it tries to bandage that up. But 
actually 80% of what plaques your arteries isn't saturated fat or cholesterol. And yes, I have a study to, to show this. Those plaques have been evaluated. Saturated fat and cholesterol are, are almost non-existent in them. The little bit of cholesterol that's there is there to try to patch up whatever lesions have occurred, usually as a result of excessive insulin, because insulin is very caustic and damaging to the arterial endothelium. So what kind of foods is, is creating it? Right. So sugary and starchy foods, you know, uh, and yeah. also rancid fats, very, very bad. 80% of what plaques arteries is not saturated fat or cholesterol. It is rancid and oxidized unsaturated fats, mm -hmm. right? Polyunsaturated fats mm -hmm. that are- The vegetable very, fats, vegetable the unstable fat. vegetable fats. Right. Or things that we've overcooked, right? Or yeah. sat around too long. Yeah. Um, and, or just tend to not, you know, uh, you know, where you don't have sufficient antioxidant protection to keep them from, from going bad. Um, and so, um, but, you know, trying to get rid of cholesterol is the equivalent of, you know, uh, basically blaming the firemen that come to put out the fire, right? And then get rid of, trying to get rid of them. Um, and it's, you know, as if they were responsible for the fire in the first place. You know, the other analogy I use is that if you have what is so-called elevated cholesterol, and elevated is an arbitrary uh, concept. In other words, there's none of the thresholds for how much cholesterol you're supposed to have or not have are scientifically established at all. They, they were arbitrarily established. They just said, well, let's, you know, let's make the cutoff 200. Um, and uh, which then ropes a lot of healthy people in to the medical system, like, you know, giving them pharmaceuticals. And, you know, the, uh, the cholesterol lowering industry now is, you know, in excess of $29 billion a year uh, or more actually um, nowadays. That was estimated at 29 billion a year back in 2009. Now it's, you know, it's probably, it's, 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 it's well more than doubled that now. And now they're actually talking about looking to lower cholesterol through vaccination. By the way, that's going to be the next generation of cholesterol. Excellent idea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not, you know, not. Um, I, I see this as cataclysmic. Yeah, know, please, please don't, don't be the guinea pig for that one. Thank no, you. please. Or yeah. Take your children the guinea pig. Okay, so now, you know, we're talking about the, because cholesterol, I think there, there's more misconceptions about cholesterol than, you know, it's I mean. It's the most unjustly vilified substance, and it's so critical for human health. It's ridiculous. You don't, you know, without cholesterol, you have no steroidal hormones. Without cholesterol, you have no healthy cognitive brain function at all. Your brain cannot function without it. Your immune system cannot function without it. Your neurotransmitters cannot function without it. And, um, and so, you know, cholesterol is your friend and ally, your body makes it, it's not trying to kill you. <laughs> what, Nora, I mean, there's a couple, there's a couple sitting here listening to this and say the man, I always assume like men are more on Lipitor, but that's probably not the case. But say one of them is on Lipitor and they're listening to it and they're trying to get pregnant, kind of like. You know, I mean, you're not just getting off Lipitor. You need to, you know, work with your doctor or whatever. But like, right. what are the th what are the steps that they're taking to kind of like balance the cholesterol and get into a, a, a you know a, a healthier state? To well, the focus is should not ever be cholesterol. Cholesterol is an indicator. So, 
say you're, you know, I think, I mean, not even I think, there, there's all kinds of evidence to suggest that cholesterol levels of, you know, 240 and, you know, 230, anyway, 220, 240, 250 are perfectly normal, have always been perfectly normal. But if for some reason cholesterol levels appear to be on the higher end, you know, they're going up or whatever, to me, it's like the light going on on your dashboard, you know, as you're driving down the road, that's telling you there's something going on. Now, you're not going to fix the problem by just unscrewing the light on the light on your dashboard. And I'm considering, oh, just fix the problem. I unscrewed the light bulb and I don't have a dashboard light. At that point, it's incumbent upon you, if you really want to know what's going on, to pull over to the side of the road and lift up the hood and figure it out. Mm-hmm. What, it, what, it, what it's telling you is that there's something going on in your body for which cholesterol, extra cholesterol seems to be needed. Lots of reasons why cholesterol will elevate. Cholesterol is an acute phase reactant. It will, it, it will elevate and sometimes plummet in response to um, inflammation in the body, depending on whether it's chronic or not. If it's chronic, you might, it may plummet. Um, infections. If you have depressed thyroid function, I guarantee you're going to have uh, elevated cholesterol. It just comes with the territory. Be happy cholesterol is there doing its job. But then you have to lift up the hood and dig a little deeper to figure out what you might need to do to correct whatever the underlying imbalance might happen to be that is causing your body to use cholesterol, you know, uh, protectively, right? So cholesterol, again, be happy it's there. That's not the problem. You have to figure out what else might be going on. And what about triglycerides? Well, triglycerides, again, so as with many things, it depends. But we know that triglycerides are a much more reliable marker of cardiovascular disease, elevated triglycerides. Anything over 100, it's like, you know, you don't want to see it. Um, Fasting triglyceride levels that way. And triglycerides, which are blood fats, are actually, are not the result of dietary fat. Dietary fat is actually absorbed mainly through the lymphatic system. There are certain, certain short and medium chain fats like butyric acid and also medium chain triglycerides from things like coconut oil and, and whatever that are absorbed directly into the hepatic you know, bloodstream and, and it immediately used for energy, either through beta oxidation or through the production of ketones, which are energy units of fat that your brain can use almost exclusively for its, its more optimal function. It's crazy how well your brain works on ketones, much better than the way it works on glucose. Um, but other forms of fat are actually absorbed through the lymphatic system that way and not dumped right into the bloodstream. What happens uh, when we consume carbohydrates in excess of what we need right now for an emergency situation where we're trying to outrun a cantankerous woolly mammoth or saber-toothed tiger is it goes into your liver and it is then converted into triglycerides, into blood fats, where uh, you know they, which are then transported around the body and deposited mostly in places where you'd rather not have them. Um, and that's the kind of what, what main, that's, what's responsible for making the kind of body fat um, that most of us would rather not have too much of. The adipose type fat around the stomach and, and things like that. Right. right. Now, if you eat carbohydrates and fats together, mm-hmm. it's not a good combo. You don't want to be eating sugary or starchy foods and fats. I know that putting butter and sour cream on a baked potato is a popular pastime, but it's not necessarily the smartest thing to do from a metabolic perspective. The deleterious effect of saturated fat, and I'm quoting Dr. Richard Feynman now, um, are, are basically have always been um, have always been observed in the presence of high carbohydrate diets. Eating fat on its own, in and of itself, 
does not make you fat. It does not cause problems at all in and of itself it, from high quality sources. Um, but the, the, the effect of fat on its own is extremely different from the effect of fat in the presence of carbohydrate. Okay. Okay. Very, very different. And that's a very, uh, so that's a very better, good point. You're much more likely to store the fat that you eat. Yeah. You'd prefer not to. And they're much more likely to oxidize because of the free radical activity and the inflammation that blood sugar surges generate and that insulin generates. So you're much more likely to oxidize that fat and cause mm -hmm. it to go rancid in your body and cause the cholesterol to go rancid. That would be the only bad form of cholesterol, oxidized or rancid cholesterol, just like oxidized or rancid anything isn't good for anyone. Okay, a couple things come up. If someone was not familiar with your work and they hadn't read your book and they could easily categorize you, they could say, oh, Nora, she's a paleo nutritionist. Um, yeah, what, so, yeah. What's the, yeah, what's the differentiation there? Yeah, so, you know, I, I really, uh, I've I, I had to contemplate this a lot more strongly lately because the, the, the so-called paleo genre now has kind of gone off into this highly commercialized direction that I don't necessarily resonate with. Um, and, and the whole ketogenic thing is, is doing the same thing, actually, very, very mm. And so I'm very, very careful to, to define what I do. And again, it's a, a, a high fat, uh, low carbohydrate, right? Um, moderate amounts of protein diet based on foods of uncompromising quality that are in direct alignment with our human um, evolutionary and genetic heritage. And then I also, I dovetail all of that. I, I uh, kind of cross-pollinate these principles with principles in human longevity research that allow us to take what our ancestors did, which as far as I'm concerned is the only rational starting place we have, and then optimize it, right? How to be, the best optimize it for, and I also take into account the world that we live in today. And I've actually coined a new term that, I, that I've, I'm in the process of legally trademarking called primogenic to create basically mm. its own genre um, because there is a very clear standard there that is, unambiguous if I'm going to define it. If I try to call myself paleo, I have to say, well, here's how I'm different. And yeah. I'm ketogenic, here's how I'm mm. different. You know, wow. genre is doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I just don't necessarily uh, think are, are very smart to do. Well, I could tell when you said that, that one minute synopsis, that was powerful. And you're like, oh, okay, I, I, I get it right that's there. What I'm about, right? Wow. And that's consistent throughout every single one of my books you'll find that I'm not changing my tune with the tide. I've been saying the same thing publicly um, uh, since 2009 in, in my work and in my whatever. I, I haven't changed my tune based on what's popular. I'm not a nutritional politician. I'm not interested in telling people what they wanna hear. And frankly, I'm not interested necessarily in being right, you know, per se. I'm interested in, in most interested in being as accurate as possible to provide the best possible information that people can come across so that they know how to create a foundational basis for their health that is going to be universe, you know, universally beneficial. And, and some you know, adjustments may need to be made under certain situations, and I account for that in my books. Um, but the fact of the matter is that, um, you know, I, you hear people say that, well, you know, 
um, everybody's different. And that's, I, I consider that a, you know, something that a nutritional politician likes to say. Everything in moderation. That's another statement. Right? You address that. That's the other one. That's the other one that just gets me. You know, get me. Want to see my blood pressure go up? You know, everything in moderation. Since when? You know, since when is it perfectly okay that? Um, you know, since when is, is something that's metabolically dysregulating and inflammatory and mutagenic and whatever, okay, in moderation, who wants to enjoy? Because we're, because we're so confused about nutrition and nutrition is such a moving target that that's the most diplomatic statement we can say at this point because we're like, what the heck really is right? Okay, well, you can eat a little bit of it because... Yeah, this is not time for diplomacy. This is time for... Yeah. We're we in a crisis. Information. Yeah. Unfortunately, there are, for instance, I can't think of a single multinational corporate interest, which, by the way, own the media. You know, you know, all of the the mainstream media, television, print, and and radio, and whatever, are owned by about six different multinational corporate interests. Every single television media thing has somebody from a pharmaceutical uh, company sitting on the board, uh, and have people from Monsanto, whatever, advising them. Um, you know, they are beholden to their advertisers, yeah. right? Um, and uh, our, our, uh, many of our, the, you know, like American Heart Association, whatever else, a lot of these government agencies are also uh, very beholden to these corporate interests and the interest of, you know, certainly, um, I mean, I can't think of a single multinational corporate interest on planet Earth, actually that would not be heavily invested in every man, woman, and child on planet Earth eating uh, essentially a carbohydrate-based diet because it's, it's cheap and easy as heck to produce. Um, it's, Im- it's incredibly profitable. There's no way you can make a 5,000% profit on a box of cereal like you can, uh, you know, or, or, or excuse me, you can't make a 5,000% profit on a grass-fed steak like you can a box of cereal. Mm-hmm. And also, eating that type of diet is going to more or less keep whoever's eating that way perpetually hungry because carbohydrates are fundamentally a form of metabolic kindling. Okay. Your so-called complex carbs, your brown, you know, your brown rice and your beans and your, you know, whole grains and, you know, crap like that, basically, you know, sweet potatoes, whatever, are basically the equivalent of twigs on your metabolic fire. White rice, white potatoes, white bread, um, things of that nature, a little bit more like crumpled up paper on that metabolic fire. Things like alcoholic beverages and sweetened, uh, you know, sweetened uh, beverages and juices and things like that are, are effectively like putting gasoline or lighter fluid on that metabolic fire. And if all you had to heat your house with using a wood stove was a big pile of kindling, well, you could do that. And metaphorically, this is what 99% of people in our culture are doing each and every single day and are being told to do by medical authorities and, and by the media. Um, but what are you doing? You have the doors to that wood stove open and you're constantly preoccupied with where the next handful of fuel is going to come from to keep that fire going. But what's the alternative to this? You know, Well, what if instead you throw a nice big fat log on that fire, now suddenly, you know, you're kind of free. You can go about your business. You don't have to be thinking about it all the time. And what I advocate for is developing a fat burning metabolism. In other words, 
metabolically relying on free fatty acids and ketones as a primary source of fuel, which is, we're extraordinarily well designed for this. Um, as, a, as opposed to a glucose-based metabolism that is constantly relying on, we're, see, we're told mm -hmm. that we're supposed to rely on glucose as a primary source of fuel. That's, that's very misleading, if not wholly inaccurate. It's only true um, if, it's true and only true if, you have cultivated a dependence on glucose as a primary source of fuel with what it is you have chosen to eat. But the alternative is absolutely there. And, and we can manufacture, of the three major macronutrients, proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, mm -hmm. the only one for which there is literally no scientifically established human dietary requirement uh, for is carbohydrate. We can manufacture all the glucose we need for the very few things that it's actually required for in the human body from a combination of protein and fat in the diet. Hopefully you get most of it from fat and not protein. It's much healthier to get it from fat and not protein. Um, and, um, and you don't ever have to consume any ever in order to meet those basic glucose requirements. It takes, it takes a period of anywhere from three to six weeks in my experience uh, commonly to make that metabolic transition, because it's, it's kind of like you're trying to, you know, convert from, you know, from a gasoline engine to a diesel engine or, or whatever have you, you know, in other words, it takes time to, um, for your body to adjust its you know, enzyme production, whatever else, to accommodate a fat burning metabolism. And so there's a little bit of a metabolic purgatory that takes place in intervening time. Some people call it the ketogenic boost. Some people don't experience it at all. I didn't. It was easy peasy for me. And other people struggle a bit more if they've been addicted to carbs for a long time or they they have maybe depressed cortisol levels uh, mm. from or something like that. That can make it really hard or they have Hashimoto's or something. It can be harder for people that have this severe dysglycemia to make that transition, but it's all the more important for them to do it so that they're not experiencing this all day long in their mood, in their cognitive function, in, in, you know, in their energy levels. Um, I've had my blood sugar as low as 57 that I've measured, where I was completely awake, alert, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, where I felt great, I wasn't hungry. Um, and it's because I don't really care how low my blood sugar gets. It's where it needs to be, mm -hmm. uh, or whatever the little bit that I need glucose is for, because I'm relying on fat instead as a primary source of fuel for my brain, for my nervous system, for my energy levels, uh, for my cognitive function, everything. Wow. Qu so, yeah. Question, what's for breakfast? Because that's kind of like, a, it's you kind of could figure out like if you're going to have, you know, like the, the grass fed, grass finished steak or, you know, something for, for dinner, but what, what's for breakfast? Well, you know, I mean, so I have a 21-day meal plan close to 60 recipes in my book, Primal Fat Burner, and I include breakfasts in there. The fact of the matter is that it's already, you know, it, it, you know a little after one o'clock in the afternoon here uh, where I'm at. I haven't, I haven't had breakfast, and I'm fine. I mean, I'm not, not even hungry. I will eat something at some point. And I usually try to eat my whatever the biggest meal of the day is going to be by around four or five o'clock if I can do it. Um, I don't like eating, you know, too late in the evening because it starts to interfere 
with sleep. If you're, you know, you don't want to be digesting when you're re resting and regenerating, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, but, but I have breakfast, lunch, and dinner kinds of recipes because that's sort of the mentality that people have. And again, a lot of this is based on the idea that when you have a sugar-based metabolism, you've got to eat every couple of hours or else, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there's an easy way to figure out if you have a blood sugar problem. You know, the first question to ask is, how do you feel if you haven't eaten for six or seven hours? For me, I haven't eaten since I had just a few slices of meat um, last night at about, I don't know, about 5.30 last night or something. Mm -hmm. That was the last time I ate. Wow. But, you know, if you haven't eaten for six or seven hours, mm -hmm. I had a cup of tea this morning, I had some tea. Um, how do you feel? Are not, you not like, good. Are you feeling tired? Are you yeah. kind of headachey? Yeah. You know, Hangry. I think that's the, yeah. yeah. You know, that irritable yeah. or agitated or that little thing that rhymes with itchy, you know, right? Um, and and the, the second question to ask is, once you've eaten, how do you feel? Are you feeling more energized? You know, like you can, oh, I can take on the world now, uh, where suddenly you get a surge of energy and you feel great again, or you feel a little more tired. Um, and want to take a nap. If you've answered yes to any of the things that I've just listed um, for either question, you've got a problem. That's not normal. It's not normal to feel any of those things in the absence of a regular meal. What it is normal to experience in the absence of a regular meal is hunger. The way you're supposed to feel is hungry, okay? And then once you've eaten, the only thing that you're supposed to feel is not hungry. And if it's anything else, you're not dealing well with blood sugar. Now, what most nutritionists, conventionally trained nutritionists and whatever, would tell you is, oh, you've got to eat every couple of hours and you mm -hmm. should be snacking mm -hmm. and whatever else. You know, <clears throat> if our ancestors would have been forced to do that, you know, I don't think we'd be here. Because when you're, when you, you know, you live in the wild, um, food availability is, is kind of a hit or miss thing. You know, and we can't, there are all kinds of things that can interfere with food availability, the time of year, you know, whether or not the animals are available for hunting, whether or not it's a time of year where there are plant foods that are available for foraging and um, whatever the other conditions are. I mean, we were regularly exposed to famines and to things that, uh, you know, where hunters came back, you know, to the camp with empty-handed, you know, there was just nothing out there to be gotten. Um, and yet, it doesn't make sense that nature would cause us to mentally and physically crash with that happening. Um, that if we're operating on fat as a primary source of fuel, you have all of the energy you need uh, in order to um, uh, do what you need to do even in the absence of regular meals, fats perpetually available. We all have anywhere from 100,000, 150,000 kilocalories of fat on, even the thinnest person watching this does. Uh, that could be fueling you ongoing, even in the absence of, of available food. Um, and it's even burning and it's constant and it's reliable. And um, now I'm not saying that you should be going without eating. I'm just saying that it, 
your sense of well-being shouldn't be contingent on whether or not you get to eat every couple of hours. It's, it's so different. It's just, it, it's such a different message than we're told, you know, that it sort of makes my head spin a little. Cause you really are like, I mean, most of us have some blood sugar imbalances. Like I wake up in the morning, I need some protein or I'm kind of going off the rails. And the only people that I know that sort of can go, I haven't even had breakfast and I'm, I'm stretching lunches. They drank like a pot of coffee and they're just kind of like on this adrenal drive and right. you know that's that not type energy. of thing. That's that's a stimulant, right? Yeah. I, I'm not categorically opposed to coffee as long as it's organically grown and 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 clean, you know, in other words that it doesn't have a lot of contaminants in it and that sort of thing. Um but you kind of have to take it on a case by case basis. If you're not worth a damn without your morning coffee, you know, if you can't if you don't experience I mean if if, if you you forego that cup of coffee how are you doing? And if you're really struggling without it, you need to look at that. You need to take a look, I think, at, at why that is and figure out what's broken so that you're not having to be dependent on a stimulant in order to function. Coffee's not energizing. It's stimulating. There's a difference. And, and there are consequences to overstimulating yourself all the time. And, uh, you know, a cup or two of organic coffee a day, if you enjoy it or whatever, I mean, I, I stopped liking coffee a long time. I just don't even enjoy it. I don't even like the smell of it anymore. Um, I enjoy my, my cups of tea, and sometimes the key, tea has caffeine, and sometimes it doesn't. And it's inconsequential. I can go, I can take it or leave it. It's just, it's comforting. So I like mm -hmm. it. But, kind of our uh, message is, if you are trying to conceive coffee right. is probably not the best thing to have in your diet. Well, let me, uh, sorry to, to interrupt, but what about dairy? Because now there's all this like raw grass fed, right. looks like very clean dairy. I mean, what, what's the, yeah, I'm really glad take you on brought that? that up. So, so the whole dairy thing in, in my newest book, I, you know, um, well, in my re first book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, I was actually kind of understanding about dairy as long as it's grass-fed and raw and all that kind of a thing, but really good quality. I've actually removed dairy um, as an, a dietary inclusion in my most recent uh, work and in the way that I look at it now. Um, I don't consume dairy uh, at all with, the, with one uh, notable exception that I'll, that I'll mention. Um, and the reason being, um, that I, the reason that I don't recommend it at large is that it's such a common source of immune reactivity for humans that, and, and unless you've been uh, through Cyrex Labs testing, and that's the only lab in the world, by the way, whose testing I trust for this for mm. efficacy, okay? Lots of other labs doing food sensitivity testing. Mm -hmm. I consider most of them a, a, you know, unreliable at best. Okay. Most okay. of them are not, not doing the kind of due diligence that they should. Cyrex Labs is the only one that has meticulous quality control uh, and has a, a uh, um, standards of sensitivity within, you know, one to two standard deviations versus, you know, four, five, six, 10, or 20. That's typical of other labs. So in other words, the results are extremely accurate. They look at both raw and cooked forms of the various foods that they're testing for. They take actually control of the raw materials and they process them themselves. And it's, it's, they do it in a very specific way. They look at IgA, IgG, IgM immune reactivity. Um, 
nobody has the comprehensiveness or the accuracy of Cyrix, just nobody. They're, they are obsessive compulsive about. Mm, thanks for mentioning them. Yeah, because right. it, it's, yeah, it's, it's confusing who to go to these days. A decade ahead of everybody else. So if you're yeah. going to spend your money, at least get it accurate. Because yeah. otherwise you just don't know. You may be told yes or no, and you're not going to know for sure. You do know for sure it's Cyrix. So, um, and at least half of everyone in the world having gluten immune reactivity as dairy is a cross-reactivity, meaning that some sensitive immune systems cannot tell the difference between gluten and dairy protein. Mm, interesting. And I'm one of those people, I had no idea. A lot of people say, well, I don't have a problem with dairy. I, I tolerate it fine. I thought mm. I would too. Mm -hmm. I didn't know until I looked at a test result of, oh crap, mm -hmm. um, what, have, what, what have I been doing to myself? Autoimmune disease right now is, in my view, the number one health burden in the world that is probably the least recognized. And many, many more people have an autoimmune condition without being aware of it. And you're not likely to be diagnosed by any conventional standards until that condition is in its end stages and, and mm. your total tissue destruction has already occurred and nothing can be done. Um, so gluten and dairy are the two most common culprits when it comes to, at least with respect to food, food sensitivities, when it comes to triggering and exacerbating any autoimmune condition, any and all autoimmune conditions. Unless somebody has done Cyrex testing and Cyrex tells them, no, nope, your immune system just doesn't even react to dairy at all. Then I hate you because I miss butter and cheese, but, <laughs> and it's okay. But you, if you don't know, it's better in my view to go no. without. Casein is a very, very difficult molecule for us to digest anyway. And it's a common source of reactivity. Look, when you look at, um, you know, all of the, the studies that, you know, um, or not all of them, but, but a lot of studies, especially T. Colin Campbell was, was, was guilty of this. What he defined as animal protein in mm -hmm. the China study, which wasn't a study, by the way, and was really, really horrible science. What he defined as, as animal protein was casein. Oh, wow. Dairy products, right? And, and it's the least well tolerated of all animal sourced proteins, the most likely to cause inflammation, the most likely to compromise your immune function, um, and uh, the least digestible by us. And so for that reason, and because optimization is what I'm really going for, it's like I figure if you, if you shoot for the stars, maybe you'll hit the moon, right? That, you know, uh, I tend to recommend, you know, not, not consuming it unless you, you're able to prove otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, thanks for bringing up the China study because I mean for me that was sort of reading that and I, I didn't know about the case casein but um, obviously I was it, it sort of further kind of conflicted me. Um, I, I know the I know the way that I with with quality saturated fats and 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 grass-fed grass-finished meats that's how I feel the best, but I've been morally, ethically conflicted and, and try to kind of talk myself into other things. And then I just go back to this diet because it's the only thing that sort of makes right. me feel <laughs> healthy, you know? Right. So, you know, if a vegetarian or vegan is vegetarian or vegan because they are opposed to the way that animals are raised for food, right? In, in, in feedlots and CAFO operations, right? Or feel like they should not consume Factory another animal. Whatever. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm, I'm starting with those arguments. Yeah. I'm right there with them. Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm there with the pitchforks and the torches and the, you know, whatever else. Yeah. Um, because to me, that's not food. 
and and it's and, and and there is an ethical there is an ethical issue with that but that's not the only the alternative to that is not vegetarian vegetarianism or veganism it's look everything that is alive and breathing on this planet every org, organism alive has to kill in order to eat that's the nature of life on planet earth there is a cycle of life and death of which we are whether we like it or not of which we are a part of which we are a very natural part and even a vegetarian has to kill in order to eat now you know if it's the life of of a plant versus an animal well then that's that's there's an inherent value that you're placing on the life of an animal versus the life of a plant which by the way you know there's a lot of evidence now that plants have their own brand of sentience you know and and i'm not saying that you're a bad person for killing and eating plants i'm saying that you know that there's this natural cycle of life and death of which we have always been a part and and we get into trouble when we think we're somehow above that I think that, that the popularity of veg vegetarianism and veganism is highly symptomatic of just how far removed we've become from the natural environment we evolved in and that, that naturally sustains us. There has never been a more destructive force on planet Earth, a, a more destructive uh, human force on planet Earth than agriculture. Nothing has done more mm -hmm. to decimate ecosystems, diversity, and, and, and has done more to, to dump horrible chemicals on the land and sterilize and destroy the soils than agriculture, right? But for tens of millions of years before humans ever came along, there were ruminant animals that blackened almost every landscape uh, across the earth, that our grasslands and, and ruminant animals co-evolved. And if you take those ruminant animals off the grasslands, the grasslands die. Planet earth is now, um, the land mass on planet earth, two thirds of which has fallen prey now to desertification directly as a result of, of, of removing, you know, killing these animals off from the land, removing the predators from the land, and uh, putting plows to soil that it creates soil erosion. And, and we now have desertification um, occurring throughout the world. And what, if you look at the work of the Savory Institute, um, I don't know, anybody that hasn't seen Alan Savory's 2013 TED Talk, which was the biggest TED Talk of that year, and one of the biggest TED Talks mm -hmm. of any, um, you should run and not walk to do so. What the Savory Institute has done through a process called holistic management, which is taking ruminant animals, in other words, livestock, and restoring natural systems to the land by taking these animals, um, which by the way, it's all compatible with wildlife and everything else putting them back on the land where they belong, where they actually in, it reinvigorate the health of the soil and of the plant life growing there. Because these animals, they amass in, in these huge herds and their little hooves are aerating the soil. And of course they're fertilizing it all like, like all get out during the time that they're there. Then predators come along and also just even biting off the, the plants and the grasses and things like that actually further invigorates um, the root systems and creates new growth. And then predators come along that are preying on these animals and that makes them nervous. And so they move off and they, they move around uh, vast areas that allow the area that they just trampled to recover and, and become better than it was the last time, you know, the animals were there. And through a process called holistic management, which basically mimics these natural systems, you can take a place where there's barely a blade of grass growing. I mean, they, and, and, and this has been illustrated throughout the world now on every, 
every continent now. Um, there's, there are a number of continents uh, that are in, implementing holistic management to one degree or another. And you can restore the health of that landscape and, and suddenly have a green and flourishing landscape with restored watersheds and everything else within a couple of seasons of just natural grazing. Wow. It, and by the way, at the same time, you know, what you're doing is you're creating a superior food supply that has mm-hmm. the potential to feed vast human populations. And, you know, the dietary approach I espouse is not a high protein diet. It's not about lots and lots and lots of meat. Please be clear that. Yeah, clarify, clarify. Uh-huh. Moderating your protein intake, meat, but you don't have to exceed, which means nobody needs more than six or seven ounces of protein in an entire day. So if, if I'm going to have a breakfast or a lunch, we're talking maybe two or three ounces of meat on that plate. Mm-hmm. So if you were to look at my dinner plate, yeah. say, wow, she must be a vegetarian because you'd see all these chopped, you know, fibrous vegetables and greens. I don't eat starchy ones, but fibrous vegetables and greens, sprouts, you know, some cultured vegetables on there and whatever else. And, um, and then you look a little more closely and you say, oh, no, no, I see little bits of meat on the plate. You know, it's sort of hidden in there, but it's there. And all it's kind of glistening <laughs> because, mm-hmm. you know, it, this, all of this was, was cooked in, in really high quality fats, right? A lar- largely from animal source foods that have a lot of nutrition to them and not just calories, right? Um, and, uh, and so in the end, calorically, fat has more than twice or roughly twice the calories per gram of protein or carbohydrate. But if you're in a, if you have a fat burning metabolism, that fat will actually generate up to four times more energy than protein or carbohydrate have the potential to do. And so the majority of the calories on the plate are actually coming from fat, even though it's not like the food is floating in fat. You're eating enough fat to satisfy your appetite and to meet your fatty acid and your fat soluble nutrient requirements. And, um, and you're moderating the protein intake, you're meeting but not exceeding your protein requirements. And then you're eating all the extra fibrous vegetables and greens for their bulk, both cooked and raw and cultured, you know, um, cultured fermented vegetables are great for the extra nutritional value they provide. And then the extra fiber is great for providing extra fodder for your internal wildlife. And then you're getting the extra antioxidants and phytonutrients and things like that. Um, but that's kind of the equation that we're talking about. So if everybody were to take the amount of protein, because most of us don't feel like we've been fed unless we're eating it like a steak that's that big. Sure, eight, eight, 16 ounces, yeah. Uh-huh. And then we're not just talking about like steak and, and, you know, and, you know, chicken breasts or something like that. We're talking about what our ancestors did was they ate nose to tail. So we're talking about the, we're talking about, you know, roasted bone marrow, which is delicious, by the way. We're talking about making a broth from the bones and, and consuming that as, as a very, very nourishing source of, of, of minerals and, and uh, glyconutrients that can help with your joints and, and help your immune system and help rebuild your gut and all that kind of a thing. Um, and then you're talking about, um, uh, you know, organ meats, right? And, and, liver being among the most important. And by the way, you want to prevent birth defects, you should be probably eating a serving of liver once or twice a week. It doesn't have to be mm. a lab of it, but mm-hmm. you want to get natural preformed vitamin A. And the only true form of vitamin A 
that exists is, is retinol from animal source foods. Beta carotene is not vitamin A, it's pro-vitamin A. It takes anywhere from six to 20 units of beta carotene to manufacture a single unit of vitamin A under optimal circumstances. Children can't make those conversions at all. People with thyroid problems or liver problems or nutritional deficiencies can't make those conversions. Animal source vitamin A can only be gotten, you know, uh, from things, well, I mean, true vitamin A, I should say, can only be gotten from animal source foods. And vitamin D3, um, the richest natural source of vitamin D3 uh, in our diets nowadays would actually be from fully pastured pork, for instance. In other words, from pigs that have been allowed to live out in fresh air and sunshine, get a lot of sunshine. And, and pork fat in that instance is going to contain an enormous amount of very high quality, healthy vitamin D3. Mm. Um, we can make D3 from sunlight under optimal circumstances during certain optimal times of the year with optimal skin exposure. If we have enough cholesterol, which again, you know, we need to be eating animal source foods um, and, uh, and all of that to manufacture that D3. Uh, vitamin K2, only gotten, can only be gotten, the most important form of vitamin K for your immune system, for the absorption and proper utilization of minerals, um, for your heart health, for your brain health, can only be gotten from animal source foods. The form that we evolved consuming is this MK4 variety that is found only in, in pasture-fed animals. There is a bacterial-generated variety called MK7 that can be gotten from fermented foods, certain types of fermented foods. But that form actually doesn't store in the body as, as, as readily as the other K2. And there's no toxicity with any level of, of K2 that you consume um, mm. in any form. And uh, it, all of this, you know, so, um, you know, fat is incredibly important if you want healthy hormones, you want, you want your baby to have a healthy brain and nervous system, you want to have normal healthy fertility. You do need to consume more protein, so yes, but make sure that you're incorporating um, a variety, all right, of animal source foods. And we're talking nose to tail eating and not just like steak and chicken, you know. You want to incorporate um, liver. Um, sweetbreads are great, which is actually the thymus gland um, of, um, usually it's the thymus gland of a calf that, that's sold as sweetbreads. It tastes like chicken. I'm telling you, it's the easiest of the organ mates and it's fabulous for your immune system. You know, it, do things with, you know, with kidneys and with the heart, you know, beef heart. I mean, you can grind that into ground beef and not even mm -hmm. know it's there. You can add little bits of raw liver into that ground beef and you can get the, the benefits of liver, the benefits of heart, the benefits of other organ meats without even having to taste it if you don't like the flavor. Right. You know, well, okay. So, gosh, we have covered so much, and we've this. Barely scratch. Yeah, we've we barely scratched it, but um, we we definitely have to wrap it up. But I, I guess the question I know people who are listening and going, okay, maybe I would consider an organ meat. Where where are they getting this or the this organ? Well, meat? you know, so what I like to encourage people to do is develop a firsthand knowing of where your food comes from. Our ancestors did this as a matter of course. Safeway, right? Yeah, Safeway, right? Yeah, that's where, you know, I mean, actually, if you ask a lot of kids in classrooms, where does the chicken come from? You know, it, it, they don't know that, that the stuff that comes shrink-wrapped in the store actually came from an animal or what, what that animal even looked like. Mm. I mean, that's how far removed we've become. So I encourage whole families to go out to farms where 
where farmers and ranchers are working really hard to do the right thing and raise their animals in the best and most humane and clean possible way. And look in the eyes of those animals, get a sense of where that food is coming from. There's a sense of the sacred that comes in, which I don't want to get airy-fairy about this, but I think that there's something there that we're missing in that firsthand knowing. Look, I, I know what it's like to look in the eyes of something that later wound up on my dinner plate. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody can tell me that I didn't take that food into my body very differently than I would have if it was just something that I bought shrink-wrapped and fried up and, and noshed on my way to work or something like that. You, you develop that firsthand knowing of, of the sacred where life is, you know, your life force is actually coming from through that food. And you develop that relationship with your food and it, it becomes, you know, I'm, I'm, anyway, I, I, think that, I think that it's an important part of the equation. I can't prove that. But I think that there is reason to assume that, that, that there would be something to that. And it's important to know where that food's coming from, not just from that standpoint, but just so that you're assured that it's being raised in the right way, so that it's going to be optimally healthy for you, right? And, and then you give, I, I prefer to give my money directly to the farmers and ranchers that are working hard to do the right thing, as opposed to the middleman in the grocery store or whatever else. But you know, there are grocery stores selling grass-fed and finished meat, and that's fine and good, and most people are going to opt for that option. But you can actually save money if you go to the ranchers themselves. You can split a cow with a bunch of your neighbors and friends and, and come out you know, ahead, get a chest freezer and freeze the rest and use that throughout the year or get a hunting license and go out and hunt your own or whatever, or fishing pole. Um, uh, and, um, but you can go, there are also places like U.S. Wellness Meats, for instance, that are an online, you know, John Wood really goes the extra mile to do the right things in the right way. And um, U.S. Wellness Meats. Yeah, not, grasslandbeef.com uh-huh. is the mm-hmm. website. Um, and you can order cut, you can order grass-fed meat by the cut, and it'll come right to your front door. Um, mm. There's a company also called Fatworks that, ha- that sells uh, animal source fats from animals that were raised in exactly the right way. Now, I know David Cole and his partner Mike have been working painstakingly for years now to create a product that is doing the right thing in the right way for exactly the right reasons. And it's a superior product, and you can get everything from tallow to the best quality, you know, lards, to, um, to you know, wild boar fat or, or uh, duck fat. Oh my God, it's like my favorite actually thing mm. in the world is duck fat. Duck fat is delicious. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Fat, chicken fat. You know, a variety, fats from a variety of sources are going to supply a different variety of nutrients because fat just isn't about empty calories. It is about... It, it is like a superfood pantry of nutrients and fatty acids and essential fatty acids um, that build your brain and your immune system and your nervous system and you know your health from the ground up. In my book, Primal Fat Burner, I made the case that the dietary fat isn't just simply not as bad as we once heard or okay as long as it's the right fats like olive oil and avocados and the occasional coconut oil or whatever. But that dietary fat, particularly dietary fat from animal source foods of uncompromising quality are not only central and foundational to human health, but also foundational and central to what made us uniquely human in the first place. Mm, Wow. And I don't know that anybody else has ever made that claim, but I supply more than an exhaustive, uh, you know, uh, array of evidence 
And in fact, the very first draft of my manuscript for Primal Fat Burner was in excess of 300,000 words and more than 3,000 peer-reviewed references, to which Simon and Schuster looked at that and went, uh, yeah, no, we've got to <laughs> They're like, condense that. To, yeah, and we um, wanted to cut 90 yeah. references. Well, your yeah, your, your research is exhaustive. And yeah. I mean, so it's sort of like, okay, well, this woman has done an extreme amount of legwork on this yeah. subject. Yeah. Nora? I can't thank you enough. I've, I've gotten so much out of this and I just want to go back and read your books again and definitely make some modifications in my, you know, in my own life. Um, always need to be tweaking and improving and um, especially right before the holidays, but also like for fertility. Yeah. I mean, you think about it and let it sink in what yeah. she said. I mean, it, it it resonated with me. It really, really resonated with me. And you know, I, I, one thing I want to point out is yeah. that all babies are foundationally born. Um, you know, in the, the in in books on 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 biochemistry and neurology, you know, babies are born in a functional state of ketosis. They are born uh, fat burners. Mm -hmm. and in fact, ketones that that once a baby's born and begun, begins suckling, the richest natural source of medium chain fats that more readily convert to ketones is actually human breast milk. And, and babies begin producing ketones in earnest when they start suckling. Uh, and ketones become the major fuel for brain development. And um, those fats are basically going to forming your baby's brain and nervous system, its immune system, Right, and all the nutrients that go with those fats are going to support their 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 functioning, healthy functioning immune systems, and um, and and you know, again, children don't start craving carbohydrates until we start feeding it to them. Mm. They don't crave sugar naturally until we start feeding them that stuff, and once they start to develop a sugar burning metabolism, then you've got problems getting them mm. back the other way. I mean, it's it's totally doable, mm. worth doing. But it's better to not ever go there, right? You know, and 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 as a, as a woman, you know, nourishing this child, you know, you want to be supplying ample amounts of these fats and fat soluble nutrients for the healthiest possible pregnancy, and you do want to be eating ample amounts of protein and or you know, in, in from from meat and organ meats, right? And and bone marrow and all these wonderful things, in order to nourish the brain of that. Um, you know, of, of that baby. And so it, it's a strong argument for breastfeeding, which I a think very strong most argument of it, for breastfeeding, yeah, which everybody yeah. should be doing yeah. for as long as possible. Yeah. And, 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 and I'm going to blame my husband for the little carb addict that we've created, though I probably had some part. <laughs> Just kidding. Our culture does everything it can to cultivate that. It does yeah. It yeah. Do so I don't blame anybody for being that way. Okay. <laughs> it's not the only way to do it. The alternative is there and it's superior. And I, I consider it, I consider a sugar-based metabolism a form of metabolic enslavement. And I consider mm. fat-based metabolism as the ultimate state of metabolic freedom that there can possibly be. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. You're so very welcome. That's You've given us an honor uh, and a pleasure. Thank you, Nora. Thank you. All right. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you, you so much. Yep. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Hour. For being one of our loyal listeners, we would like to give you free access to a special report called Restore Your Fertility Naturally. 
Inside, you'll learn about an eight-step, all-natural process that's helped hundreds of couples conceive. This is one of our most popular reports, and you can get free access by going to fertilityhour.com forward slash report. Again, that's fertilityhour.com forward slash report. Go there now, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Fertility Hour.